Okay, the last two Sunday schools, uh, we've, we've, looked, we've basically done some theology. Uh, we looked at Luther at Leipzig, um, his debates with Eck over uh, church authority. And last week we looked at uh, Luther's address to the German nobility, uh, the sort of call to arms. But mostly we looked at his uh, dismantling of these three walls uh, that Rome has, has, has built up in order to protect itself uh, in, its, in its corruption. I'm tempted to do a quiz. If this, if this were a class at the seminary, I would do a quiz right now and remember what the three, what the three walls are. Well, maybe I'll do a quiz anyways. Let's, let's, why not? What, anyone remember, what were the three walls that Rome uses to defend its corruption? They, they're not... That the, the right, the priority of papal interpretation of the Bibles, that, that's one of them. Sorry again? The right of the, of the papacy to call councils. And, and then the, the sort of hierarchy of, of, of ecclesiastical persons, um, persons in offices, religious sort of a hierarchy of, if, you, if you're a priest, a monk, a bishop, etc., um, you're sort of by default have a, a higher valuation, so to speak, than, than just regular Christians, second-class citizens. So Luther attacks all three of those. Um, but remember, the address of the German nobility is first a call to the German princes and, and nobility to take down these three walls to do what Rome seems incapable of doing uh, itself. So we're going to leave theology aside a little bit today and, and, and explore who are these German no, no, uh, noblemen, who are the German princes and noblemen that Luther calls on to, to reform the church? They're a pretty uh, colorful uh, cast of characters, I can tell you. Uh, here's the first, where, where we start here, the biggest possible context for the Reformation. Who's, whose empire is it? The Holy Roman Empire. The Holy Roman Emperor is pictured here. We'll just keep quizzing today. He's got a fur robe. That's how you know he's top dog and a little thing there. Anyone remember who the Holy Roman Emperor is? It could be a trick question because one of them, the old one, Maximilian, dies in 1519. Right at the time Luther's starting to get in trouble, the emperor dies and Charles V is elected the new Holy Roman Emperor and he'll remain the emperor uh, right up until the mid-1550s, 1556. It all got to be too much for him. Um, he, he was, uh, uh, a, had a complicated empire with a lot of different issues that he was dealing with. Um, he was certainly a multitasker. Uh, he had to direct his attention several different places at once, spoke multiple languages, had uh, a flood of ambassadors uh, and emissaries coming and going. Um, what else could I say about his biography? Well, allegedly, this is probably not true, but it allegedly... It's Charles V who first said uh, that he speaks Spanish to God, uh, Italian to women, French to men, and German to his horse. <laughs> That's, have you ever heard some variations of that saying? I highly doubt that that was actually Charles V who said that, but it's the job of historians, you know, to report not just what happened, but what everyone thinks might have happened or allegedly happened. Um, so allegedly that's Charles V who said that, but already you can get some sense of what he thought about Germans, (laughs) 
by the fact that he speaks German uh, to his horse. In any case, that's Charles V. Uh, it's, his, it's his empire. This is a Lucas Cranach um, painting. We looked at the, uh, the, the Vineyard of the Lord uh, mural a few weeks ago. That was by Lucas Cranach. This is also, we'll look at a couple of different Lucas Cranach um, portraits today. <clears throat> Lucas Cranach was the, probably, along with Albrecht Durer, um, was the greatest German Renaissance painter. Um, these two, Cranach and Durer. The Italian Renaissance, uh, the, the Renaissance painters from Italy are probably more famous. The Northern Renaissance uh, was mostly directed by by these two gentlemen. So that's a Lucas Cranach painting. Cranach was Luther's friend and colleague in Wittenberg, and he traveled around and, and got to paint the emperor at one point. Okay, here's the, here's the actual empire. Um, just to get a little sense of what Charles was dealing with. So here's Germany. Saxony's right there. This little gray area is where Luther's from. Um, Frederick the Wise, we'll talk about in just a few minutes, is there in Saxony. As long as Luther stays within Saxony, he's protected by, uh, by the prince. Oh, but this is the whole area. Everything in red here, um, all the red lands belong to the church. Sort of direct uh, title, so to speak. Uh, real, you know, they're the ones holding the deeds, uh, the church. Through prince bishops archbishops, etc. Everything in, in this kind of soupy pea green color, split pea soup, uh, is, uh, is Habsburg, Habsburg holdings. Um, so mostly the Holy Roman Empire is, is, is made up of all these areas, but then uh, the church owns part of uh, the emperor's empire, so to speak. Well, what challenges is, does Charles face? Um, just looking at the map, we could mention a couple of them. Uh, we've talked a few times about the Ottoman Empire, the Turkish Muslim Empire down here. Well, these are gray arrows, if you can make them out, going north. Gray, gray arrows on maps usually mean that armies are moving in a particular direction. And the entire Ottoman Empire um, marched all the way, this is, this is Vienna right here, um, Austria marched on Vienna, and Vienna was actually under siege during uh, the early part of the Reformation, the 1520s. 1523, I think, the siege was finally lifted. The Ottomans were beat back, and there was sort of temporary reprieve. But one of the things that Charles was dealing with is that from, from, from uh, the Diet of Worms, from 1521 all the way until 1529, for 10 years, Charles constantly has to raise armies and march the entire army uh, east and south to fight the Ottomans from encroaching on the Holy Roman Empire. Um, well, where does his army come from? Frequently it comes from uh, these German noblemen, sometimes uh, his own army. Sometimes uh, the church sends soldiers along with. But he had a really tense friend, uh, relationship with the with the church. Uh, one other struggle we could mention, we'll talk about the papacy. I'm trying to find where it is here. Oh, there we go. This is really small. I can barely read it, so you probably can't read it back from back there. Right here, there's a little, a little arrow, and it says, France and Charles um, both claim Milan and Naples. 
by virtue of their, you know, uh, uh, family ties, their relatives, the king of France here and Charles, who is the king of Spain before he becomes emperor, both have claims uh, to be the rulers of Milan right there and the kingdom of Naples. And it's not entirely clear who should be in charge. They're both claiming it, and they actually go to war with each other at several points during, during the Reformation. Um, France, you should know, is not a part of the Holy Roman Empire. It's its own, it has its own king um, and its own, uh, its own politic, so it's not part of the empire. So, um, well, let me tell you about the papacy quick, and then we can tie together an amusing, at least I think it's amusing, uh, with a dark sense of humor, story about uh, Charles and this kind of uh, triangulation of struggle for for these disputed lands in Milan and Naples. Um, I think I mentioned before that that Charles never got on terribly well with the papacy. Uh, we'll see that in a couple places today. Um, in fact, uh, the Pope opposed Charles's election, um, trying, fearing. Um, that, uh, that because of the Habsburg claim to Naples, right, this red area are the papal states. I'm trying to hold my hand still. The little red area is the papal states in, in Italy. That's all that the church owned of Italy. The kingdom of Naples is its own region, but should be owned by the Habsburgs and then, and then Milan up there. Um, so they feared if Charles becomes the emperor, he'll, he'll exercise his claim to Milan and Naples. And, and you don't want a strong emperor and the king of Spain to be that close to your, you know, in your backyard. So they opposed him. Um, well, eventually they all go to war. And um, the church, Rome, sides with France against the emperor. So in the middle of the Reformation, uh, Charles V faces a war in the south of the kingdom of Naples and in this area right here, fighting against both uh, Roman Catholic armies and, uh, and the king of France. Who does he call on for help? German princes join up with Charles V to fight the French and, and the Roman Catholic Church. And at, at the most outrageous uh, moment, in 1527, well into the Reformation, uh, Charles V and the German Protestant princes sack Rome. And for about 11 months, just plunder the city. Uh, so there are German Protestant princes and German Protestant soldiers in Rome in the 1520s, in the middle of the Reformation, um, kicking all the priests out of the Vatican, etc., deciding what books they want to take back to Germany to give to the Protestant reformers. There's a really famous Lutheran uh, who is a cranky, a cranky Lutheran, an Old Testament professor, um, who is famous for going into Roman Catholic libraries and, and stealing books. Uh, he got caught several times. And so eventually he, he devised a new strategy, which would be to simply take a razor blade and just excise the pages that he wanted and then put the back up, book back on the shelf so that everyone would think all was well. It was called the Flackian razor, uh, uh, is what he called it. So anyways, there are Protestants there um, fighting uh, both against the French and against Rome to help the emperor uh, out. Well, this should just, at the very beginning, give you an idea that um, political, uh, political fights 
did not necessarily fall out along religious lines. Because Charles V is, was a devout, in quotes, Roman Catholic. Um, and yet he's recruiting Protestant princes from Germany to fight against a Catholic kingdom of, of France and also a Catholic um, uh, leader, Pope, in, in Rome. So the political situation is, is very fluid and, and ambiguous throughout. That's some of Luther's, or some of, some of Charles's problems. Um, believe it or not, the, the German princes were, were probably uh, the most constant source of irritation for Charles because he relied so heavily on them to send soldiers to fight the Ottomans, um, to raise taxes, to fight against France and Naples. So throughout the entire Reformation, Charles is constantly... Uh, negotiating, adjusting the terms of various deals with German Protestant princes. He needs the German Protestant princes um, for a whole variety of reasons that I've mentioned, but also because all combined, they make up the majority of his empire. And it's, it's at, it's Charles, you got to think like a, an emperor might. It's in his best interest to keep this region in the heart of his empire stable and yet not so unified that they simply elect their own German emperor and become their own you know, little German empire. So it's a delicate balance of keeping it stable, courting them so that they'll send money and soldiers, but don't let them get so, so organized that they actually threaten um, uh, Charles' own, own claim. Well, uh, that's just some of the reasons why, um, why Charles you know, had a complicated uh, empire, probably why he just gave up in 1556 and abdicated and split the, split the empire between his brother and his son and let them take over. He resigned to a, uh, a monastery and died a, a year or two later. Um, it's all because of the German princes. So the question is, <clears throat> apart from Charles's relationship to the German princes, why do the German princes matter within the empire? Um, it has everything to do with, with the hierarchy. You know, uh, the Holy Roman Emperor, HRE, is at the tip top. He's elected by seven, uh, seven electors. And everyone else then falls out at some other place on the, on the pyramid. Well, the princes, the nobility, to whom Luther addresses his plea in, 19, in, in 1520, um, rule the empire. They have the delegated authority to do all, conduct all the day-to-day -day business for the emperor. So uh, the legal system, the police, the taxation, um, the legal system from all the way, you know, land disputes between other noblemen all the way down to neighbors fighting in the street about, you know, whether or not you're tree is too close to the property line, all the, all the way down to the petty things uh, that neighbors argue about. The nobility and the princes are in charge of it. So there are princes in terms of the hierarchy. There are princes, and then there are uh, what's called lesser nobility, namely the knights. Still kind of a medieval world that we live in. Knights with actual horses and swords and and all that. Um, below, the, below the lesser nobility are the clergy. Um, obviously, we've talked a lot about the clergy, 
the clergy, not independently, but collectively are major landholders and play a pretty important role in, um, in the empire. Then below that, there are you know, patricians and burghers and sort of the middle class, various people who might uh, own shops, run shops, um, employ other people, etc. So Luther, at the time of the Reformation, says the Pope's not going to be able to reform the church itself. Christians need to reform the church. And he calls on sort of the, the middle part of the hierarchy, right in there, to carry on the work. And, and people take up his call uh, to, to reform. And we're going to meet uh, three of them in particular today. I better erase this. These are some of my favorite non-theologians. These are, these are not theologians. At least one of them studied theology, but we would hesitate to call him a theologian. Uh, in terms of amusing figures of the Reformation, these three really take the cake. Uh, we, have, we have a prince, uh, Frederick the Wise. We'll only talk about him briefly because I've mentioned him before. We have uh, a knight in the middle, Franz von Sickingen. Well, my pointer doesn't work. Uh, we have a, a knight errant, you might call him, uh, a sort of Don Quixote type. Uh, and we have on the end here, there we are, uh, a poet adventurer, Ulrich von Hutten, who is also, also a knight. Um, there is a Lucas Cranach uh, painting of Frederick, Frederick the Wise. Though I've mentioned a few things about Frederick, haven't I? Okay. The problem is I teach a Reformation course at the seminary right now, and I don't remember anymore what I've said where. Um, well, I, will, I won't say much about, about Frederick. Frederick was a collector, right? He collected uh, art. He collected relics. Uh, he collected people like university professors um, and, and lawyers. He collected uh, lots of different things. And um, he came to know of Luther through this man. George Spalatine is his name. George Spalatine was a lawyer who became the right-hand man, the like legal counsel for Frederick the Wise. And, and George uh, Spalatine was a fellow student of Luther's. They actually went to law school together. Before Luther goes into the monastery, he goes off to law school at his, at his father's request and, and becomes very close friends with George Spalatine. Um, Spalatine is the one who introduces Luther to Frederick. It says, there's a capable uh, professor here. You should bring him to the new university. And so 1511, Luther brings him, or, or uh, Frederick brings, brings Luther um, to Wittenberg. We've seen Spalatin before when we looked at the, this is the, that uh, Vineyard of the Lord mural. This is actually Spalatin right here and his little maroon coat. Uh, there's Luther right there. There's Paul Eber, the man for whom the, 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 uh, the work was commissioned. Well, Spalatin's wearing a maroon coat because uh, that was the coat that was worn by sort of the legal counsel. Um, it's indicating that kind of official status. Well, what you probably can't tell that he's doing, but I'm going to, uh, I'll mention it. 
because it's sort of amusing. He's actually shoveling manure, um, which may seem kind of gross, but it's pretty important in a vineyard, and it is definitely important in imperial politics. <laughs> um, Spalatine was the guy who, who took care of all of Frederick the Wise's problems, um, did his best to make them go away, negotiated deals, spread praise where it needed to be spread, um, etc. And And for throughout the entire Reformation, Spalatine is the go-between uh, between Luther and Frederick the Wise. Uh, Frederick Wise, he didn't get this name you know, for nothing. Uh, he was crafty, and he never met Luther. He was very careful to never meet Luther, to always maintain deniability. It's sort of like a, a mob boss. It's so hard to get a mob boss in, in, uh, you know, in, in court because he doesn't seem to give directions to anybody. There's only one man who's the go-between. Um, well, that's, how, that's what Spalatin was for Frederick. Um, he was the go-between. Spalatin also negotiated um, with Rome on behalf of, on behalf of Frederick. So uh, at the time of the imperial election, actually, um, the Pope came courting, uh, Charles, uh, came courting Frederick the Wise, hoping that Frederick... Would, uh, would be willing to serve as elector because the Pope didn't want Charles V to become elector. Spalatin was the guy who, who, who negotiated uh, the fact that Frederick would not be the elector, but in fact Charles would be against the wishes of the papacy. So um, Spalatin's an important guy, Luther's friend. That's how uh, he gets roped into uh, bringing Luther on board. Okay, here's, here's our knight. Franz von Sickingen, our knight, our knight errant. <coughs> um, Franz von Sickingen was a, a kind of rising star in, in the political uh, sphere for a brief period of time. Um, he made himself uh, an important, reliable figure for the emperor and came to play a pretty interesting role in the Reformation itself. Tell you a little bit uh, about him. He was uh, an extraordinarily wealthy individual uh, by birth, but one of those lesser nobility, a knight, not a prince. Um, he used all of his uh, family connections and his, his wealth to build uh, an extensive mercenary army. At the time, in the 16th century, if you wanted an army, usually that meant people who worked in the field. You'd have to pay them enough to leave aside their farming tasks and temporarily take up arms, sort of like the reserves. Well, his strategy and his brilliance was to build a large standing army that he could then sell to, to the highest bidder. To call him a mercenary doesn't really do do justice to him. He's not just a guy with a sword um, who's willing to go uh, uh, you know, to battle for the highest bidder. He's more of a, uh, a full-service uh, army, uh, a, a general strategist. Actually reminds me a little of the, uh, the Blackwater guy. Does anyone know the, the like private defense security force? Um, we're going to get way off track here if I keep tracing down. You know, he was a, a CR, born and raised in the CRC in Grant, from Grand Rapids, Michigan, um, 
went, became a Navy SEAL, and then built this large private security force, which is essentially like an entire full-service army that went and got government contracts. That's what he is. That's basically what Franz von Sigingen was. Um, he's a, a, a mercenary man. He's kind of like a Protestant Robin Hood. At least that's how he saw himself, uh, a Protestant crusader. He eventually does um, convert to Lutheranism, becomes a pretty devout uh, Lutheran. But mostly he's interested in, in selling himself as someone who, well, he's a knight. He does chivalrous things. He takes the side of the, of the uh, neglected, the one who's been wronged, and, and tries to set things to right. So there's an example from Worms, from just before the Diet of Worms, um, a, a patrician, a kind of middle-class um, uh, uh, guildmaster was exiled and kicked out of the city. Well, Franz von Sigingen heard of this story and marched 7,000 men into Worms and demanded of the city council that they restore this man and his property. And he also excised uh, a tax from the city council of Worms to make money to pay for his standing army. Uh, another uh, pretty interesting example that has relevance to the, to the Reformation um, at the time of the imperial election in 1519, Franz von Sigingham went to France to strike a deal with the king of France that he would use the influence of his army and military presence to try to convince some of the electors to make the king of France the next Holy Roman Emperor. And he took a pretty substantial sum of money uh, as a kind of down payment from the king of France in order to uh, to, to make good on this deal. He promptly went back to Germany, talked to Charles V, and said, here's what he gave me. What's it worth it to you to be the emperor? Charles V paid him. Uh, he became the emperor. And then Charles V commissioned Franz von Sigingen to go to France and sack a bunch of cities uh, and take the money, take the booty back uh, Back to, back to the empire. So that's what kind of guy he, he, he was, a crafty sort of individual um, who was in it for the booty, um, for the treasure. I told my wife that I was going to say that we were going to talk about booty today, and she said that I had to explain what I mean to avoid misunderstandings. Uh, <laughs> so to me, it's just obvious we're talking about pirate treasure here, right? You know, uh, ill-gotten uh, fortunes. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. Uh, what's, that, what's that movie with Paul Newman? The Color of Money? Uh, t money, money won is twice as sweet as money earned. That's, a, that's I think, Paul Newman's line. Well, that's, that's how he felt uh, <laughs> about his role in things. And in fact, there's even a very famous Albrecht Durer uh, uh, engraving that is very likely uh, about, this is probably Franz von Sickingen. In fact, this might be interesting just to talk about. We're not going to get very far today. I'm realizing that now. Uh, <laughs> at some point, we will fr free Luther from kidnapping uh, from the Vortburg. We're going to leave him there the rest of today. This is a very interesting Albrecht Durer engraving um, from, it's hard to make out, from 1513. It's actually very controversial to even know how to interpret this, this engraving. So what do we see? Uh, Okay, we got a knight, 
on a horse. That much is obvious. Uh, he's got a faithful, loyal dog down there at his feet. Castle on the hill. He's probably journeying there. Uh, who else is in this is in this engraving? Who's this? Who's this scary, ghoulish figure? His flesh is rotted off. There's a serpent sort of wrapping himself around his neck and his and his helmet. Um, he's also riding on a horse. Uh, it's maybe hard to to make out here, but his horse is pale. Maybe some of you learned about the Book of Revelation from Clint Eastwood movies. Um, that was the first time I heard about a pay, horse on a pale, uh, a rider on a pale horse. It was about Clint Eastwood, but you're all, I can clearly see from the expressions, more pious than I am. <laughs> and so, uh, I, admittedly, I was in junior high, so it's, you know, it's not my fault. But who rides on a pale horse? Death. What has he got here? He's got a little hourglass. He's reminding the knight, time's, time's fading, I'm going to get you. Uh, and then we have this, I suppose even more frightening character behind him. It's hard to tell. That's a, it's like a goat with various kinds of horns. That's the devil. So this is a, a portrait or a, a representation of Franz von Sickingham, this Robin Hood knight with dubious morals. Um, and he's riding with his two companions, death uh, and, and the devil. So now the question is how to interpret the, the, the engraving. He doesn't seem terribly bothered. He's ignoring death's warning here. Um, in fact, the expression on his face, most people describe it as being sanguine. He's known for being sanguine. He's um, confident in a time of trouble and distress. Maybe, maybe even cautiously optimistic in the midst of, of despair. Um, well, well, here are the various interpretations. One is that this is Christian imagery, um, that he's walking like Psalm 23 through a valley. That's a big rock formation. He's walking through the valley of the shadow of death, but isn't bothered. He'll fear no evil. And he's a knight, but he's also maybe wearing the armor of Ephesians 6, breastplate, righteousness, belt of truth, etc. Um, I suppose that would be both a real sword, sword of the spirit. Interestingly, though, there's no shield of faith. Maybe some ambiguity there. I don't know. Um, so there could be a Christian interpretation of this. Others suggest no, because on his lance is a fox's tail. And in medieval allegories, fox's tails represent sort of cunning, treachery, etc. So maybe he's just really, you know, a land pirate out, out to make another grab. And, and, the, and the, the message of this engraving is that death and the devil will get him. They're his companions in this life of crime, uh, so to speak. Well, it's hard to say. There's one other interpretation that, that would get us pretty far afield. It has to do with him being sanguine. Well, I have to tell you just a little bit. Um, one thought is that Adur made this engraving 
in order to, as the first of a series of four engravings to represent uh, the four medieval temperaments, uh, sanguinity being one of them, right? Um, I see I may have to explain. Uh, In the medieval world, where did I put my, here it is. In the medieval world, everybody thinks in terms of fours in the medieval world, right? There are the four elements, this goes even back to Aristotle, the four elements are water, wind, earth, and fire, right? Um, or you could think of four temperatures uh, or, or four, let's see here, water is obviously wet, um, fire is hot, wind is cold, and earth must be dry. So if you want to figure out what stuff is made of in your medieval person, it's got to be made of water, wind, earth, or fire, or some combination of those things, right? In terms of their temperature, it's wet or cold or hot or dry. You combine these in various ways, and you come up with, with, uh, with well, that's how they figured people's personalities were as well. In fact, temperament, what kind of temperament do you have, is, is actually a, an allusion to, to, to this row. So if you combine... Um, you know, the major advancement in medicine was to think about uh, these things in relation to, to the color of your bile, not to be too disgusting, right? So you had red, yellow, bile, black bile. Depending on how you combine these things, maybe, maybe it was the, the kind of bile in your body that made you uh, a certain temperament. So sanguinity is, uh, is one of these. I think it's um, earth and dry. Now I've said way too much about this. You're all probably wondering how, what we're talking about this for in adult Sunday school. That's a good question. Um, we're exploring the medieval worldview. That's what we're doing. <laughs> we're trying to understand the medieval worldview. So the theory was maybe that that's what this is. I think probably the, uh, uh, the Christian interpretation is, is the best. Um, the reason why people go with the sanguinity version is because right down here in the little where the skull is, there's an S. So some people thought maybe that's an S for sanguinity. The AD stands for Albert Durer. We don't know. Um, in the end of the day, and I think the ambiguity is probably uh, maybe part of part of the point. He did, however, convert to Protestantism and turned one of his castles into what was called a fortress of righteousness, Abernburg. Um, this was the third. Uh, the third village in the entire Reformation to adopt a Protestant church order. Uh, and this was his, it was his personal possession. It's where he kept some of his army, Abernberg. And in fact, it became um, a major refuge for Protestant reformers who were uh, in trouble with the law. Um, Martin Bunzer, the, the uh, reformer from Strasbourg, lived here. Um, for close to a year. Uh, Johannes Ecolampadius, the uh, reformer from Basel, spent uh, a year there hiding out. Um, Luther was invited to come and stay here instead of going to the Diet of Worms. We'll, we'll get to that story um, in, in just a minute. But essentially, uh, he set up the safe haven and he became, um, after his conversion, still very much a Robin Hood uh, land pirate type, but on crusade. Um, 
his goal was to put some of Luther's uh, ideas into practice, to take money away, to kick priests out of the monasteries, to take money to confiscate lands, um, to block uh, loyal Catholic Germans from sending money to Rome. That's basically what, what, uh, what Franz von Sickingen spent his, the remainder of his life doing. It turns out he didn't live much longer. And we'll get to that. I hate to give away the story too much, but we've got to keep pressing on here. Um, okay, the next, the next figure here is um, Ulrich von Hutten. Here uh, is our poet adventurer. Ulrich von Hutten was born uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a castle to a very, a very powerful uh, medieval family. His father was a knight. Um, his brother went on to be a major explorer in Venezuela. Uh, and, and so the question is, will, will young Ulrich measure up? Well, apparently he was a sickly boy. And at age of 10, his father stuffed him away in a Dominican monastery, um, thinking he was too weak to carry on and, and be a knight. Uh, so he didn't measure up in his father's eyes. But he snuck out of the monastery uh, paid for himself scrapping together money uh, to go to university, studied theology for a while, um, studied law for a while, uh, but fell in love with the humanist tradition at the time of the Renaissance and became a poet. Uh, some of his poetry became so famous that Charles uh, V gave him knighthood, even though he'd been uh, neglected um, and, and disowned from his father. And so that's why he's wearing... Uh, armor here. It's because he's a knight, but he's also wearing. Uh, anyone know what those are? Laurels, a poet laureate. The sign of of being a poet is to have the laurel wreaths. So he has a laurel wreath and a fancy little mustache. There, he's a bit of a thuggish dandy, is is I suppose <laughs> what you'd have to say. Um, at one point, he actually goes to work for. Uh, for our, the Archbishop of Mainz. Archbishop of Mainz, Albrecht of Brandenburg, is the one who, who borrowed all the money in order to buy ecclesiastical offices and, and then sells and sends indulgences, sends indulgence peddlers to pay for it all. And so Luther, this is like Luther's nemesis. And he goes to work for him as a kind of like, I don't know, in-house poet, knight of sorts, um, and travels with Albrecht of Brandenburg to Augsburg to hear Luther in the services of the person that Luther is attacking. And he hears Luther and is won over and, and becomes a Protestant, is eventually disowned um, by, uh, by Albrecht of Mainz and falls in with Franz von Sickingham, our, uh, our knight errant. Uh, while all that is happening, he goes, he's one of the German uh, questionably Protestant princes who goes off uh, to help Charles V in his fight against France and, and, and the papacy. So he goes off. This is a 19th century painting. He goes off to France, and uh, that's him. He's about to finally finish somebody off. He looks like he's trying to make for the exit, but he's not going to make it. Uh, and there are bodies sort of strewn all over the place. Well, he's most famous for having been involved in this kind of barroom fight, essentially. This is a tavern. 
there's very conflicting stories about what actually happened. Um, his own friend said that he sat down at the tavern and, and the host served the French soldiers first before giving him his beer. And he thought that was an insult because he was a knight. And so he ran these people through. That's, that's probably what happened. His version of the story is, is that the French had insulted the emperor. And so it, he was only doing the honorable thing in, uh, in doing away with these people. But he was famous in, in European history right up into the 19th century when this was, when this was painted. So he's, he's this, uh, yeah, he's a thuggish dandy. That's what we'd have to call him. Um, even so, he goes to Augsburg and becomes uh, convinced of Luther's claims of the corruption of the papacy, and so turns all of the skills uh, that he has as a poet, brings them to bear on attacking, writing, writing uh, ruthlessly satirical works about the papacy, um, sort of lending uh, his attack, uh, lending his services to Luther. So he's here, patrons of truth, patrons of liberty. Um, Reuchlin, we'll talk about him in a few weeks maybe, there's Hutton. Huttonus is his Latin name. He's, he's the knight here. And Luther. The patrons of liberty here. This is from 1521, the year of Worms, against um, this uh, group of malicious uh, priests, papal inquisitors over here. Um, well, what might have been Here's a question to ask. After the Archbishop of Mainz uh, disowns, denounces Ulrich von Hutten, the poet, uh, he joins, goes off to Abernberg to the castle with Franz von Sickingham, and the two of them hatch a scheme to try to for- put forward uh, the Reformation uh, agenda by, by military might. Luther in, 19- in 1520 had asked the German nobility to reform the church if the Pope won't, won't do it. And Ulrich von Hutten and Franz von Sickingham thought, he's talking to us. This is our task. Let's do it. And so they go off to Ebernberg to prepare uh, to try to network with other uh, German princes uh, in order to attack both the papacy and the emperor. Well, the emperor uh, sends his personal confessor. Here, this is a, we only have like two minutes left, so I got to say this quickly. You get actually a sense of the real ambiguity of the situation for Charles V, the emperor. He sends his own personal confessor, his like private priest, his personal pastor, basically, um, and one of his ambassadors secretly to the Abernberg Castle three weeks before the Diet of Worms with a deal. Tell Luther, don't go to Worms, come hide out at Abernberg, and I will send uh, my ecclesiastical references, this is the emperor talking, uh, and we'll talk about how to reform the church. There's a couple of things happening. One, Charles had caught wind of the fact that Hans uh, von, von, uh, Ulrich von Sutton and Franz von Sickingham, the Hans and Franz of the Reformation, uh, were raising an army, and he doesn't want that. If, if anyone's going to raise an army, it's going to be Charles, and they probably need to go fight, uh, fight the French. So he's worried about that. It also turns out that Charles V had taken out a massive loan 
from Franz von Sickingham. And so he sends delegates to try to, try to get Luther not to go to Worms. And, and Martin Bunzer, the reformer from Strasbourg, says, well, okay, maybe, maybe there's a deal here. So he goes off, rides to meet Luther on the way to Worms in, in 1521, and offers him this idea, don't go uh, to, to, uh, to Worms. Maybe there's a deal to be had with the emperor, and we can just short, short circuit or, or what's uh, shortcut around, around the pope himself. Well, here's what uh, Luther flatly refuses Bunzer's proposal. Um, he's not about to jeopardize his, his passage of safe conduct um, and, and says, I'm paraphrasing, something to the effect that no political compromise can be made uh, when the truth of God's word is at stake. So he refuses to go to Worms. Um, at that point, Ulrich von Hutten says, uh, don't doubt my constancy, I will, uh, I will stick with you and, and we'll pursue the Reformation by military means. You go to Worms and try to work it out theologically. And, uh, and in fact, that's what happens. Um, this final engraving here, uh, uh, a triumph of truth, a procession of truth here, uh, is supposed to represent uh, a whole host of different characters going into Worms. Uh, this knight right here is Ulrich von Hutten, the poet adventurer, um, connected to uh, the tail of his horse, that's a chain, are a whole host of uh, clergy, <laughs> Roman bishops and priests, sort of in, in, uh, in, his, in Hutton's custody. Everyone is welcoming, right? They're throwing... It's like grapes and things welcoming this procession into, uh, into Worms. This is supposed to represent the introduction of the gospel to the German nation, uh, a procession of truth. Behind, uh, behind the prisoners, uh, there's Luther, and there's another reformer, Karlstadt, and that's uh, our Lord on a, on a little carriage, um, it's almost impossible to tell looking at this, but the carriage is being, uh, is being uh, led by, by four uh, allegorical creatures from the book of Revelation, from Revelation chapter 4. Uh, and it, around the throne in Revelation 4, um, there are these, these creatures with many eyes. One represents uh, the face of a man, an eagle, uh, an ox, and what's the other one? And a lion. Yeah, good heavens, a lion. Well, that's supposed to represent the four gospel writers. The evangelists are introducing Christ, leading him in this triumph of truth. Well, Hutton actually did go off to Worms with, with Luther and may have been one of those who helped kidnap Luther after, after Worms. So that's just a quick uh, preview here of, of some of the, the noblemen, the princes who actually take up Luther's call uh, in some misguided ways we'll see next week, um, but it's time for us to, to end today. I'm sorry I didn't leave time for questions. It's because I spent too much time about medieval cosmology. I apologize. But now you know to check the color of your bile uh, <laughs> to see what kind of personality you have. That's a terrible segue into prayer, but we should pray. Uh, I, I apologize. It, it can't be remedied at this point. Uh, let's pray. Let's give thanks.
Uh, Grace's Father, we, um, we marvel at your providential care uh, for each one of us and, and for your church. Uh, sometimes the world seems to be um, governed by the, the confusion of men, men with mixed motives. Uh, and yet, through all these things and in all these things, you, you accomplish your purposes, your purpose to uh, sometimes chasten us with fatherly discipline, um, but ultimately to build us up. Uh, to comfort us with the grace of your Son, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in whom and it's in him that we rest uh, secure this Lord's Day. And we give you thanks uh, for your goodness and mercy to us. In Jesus' name, amen.